The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Exodus 2, 11 through 25. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And he answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered our flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Sephora. And she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew this is the word of the Lord. Well, if you're just joining us, we began our year-long study in the book of Exodus last week. Exodus is the story of the exit, the departure of Israel or the Hebrew people out of Egyptian slavery. It's the story of the birth of the nation Israel. And honestly, it's one of the most known stories in all the world. It is awesome. It's an awesome story. It's full of the miraculous. This is, we love our, our, our kids love this story, right? We love to teach our kids the story. We've got the burning bush that we're going to see next week. We've got the plagues. We've got God leading his people out of Egypt through a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. We've got them crossing the Red Sea and it opening up and parting on each side and then it collapsing and closing in on, on Pharaoh. We've got God with his own hand writing the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone. This book is spectacular. But while all those things are great, and they're each key aspects or key chapters in the story of the Exodus, they aren't really what this book is all about. Exodus is about God delivering his people out of slavery so that they can worship him. Now, we touched on it last week, and we're going to see it over and over and over and over, that It's not a, you know, Charlton Heston, when he stood up, if you've ever seen this movie, I think maybe you can get it on Netflix now. He stood up and said, 
let my people go, powerful. Except that's not what the Bible said. Over and over and over, you see Moses and God tell Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may worship me. See, it's not about deliverance from slavery into some kind of freedom where I get to do what I want. It's about delivering, being delivered from slavery so that I can meet God and enjoy God and worship God. That's what the book of Exodus is all about. See, the Bible tells us that humans are built for glory. Now, can I just say this? I've never seen an animal as brilliant as they are in some aspects, as smart, I've never seen a dog, right? You can teach a dog to do so many things, but I've never seen a dog stare at the sunset and just enjoy the sunset. Why? They're not made in the image of God, right? They're not made for glory. We're made for glory. How many of us has stood before the Grand Canyon and just, whoa, stood before Niagara Falls, stood before a sunset. One of the things I love about Iowa is our sunsets. Nearly every night, God just shows off. You don't get that down south, bro. You don't get that in the mountains even. I was in the mountains for a month. We're like, eh. (laughs) Iowa does it better. The mountains are beautiful. We don't have that, right? He shows off with the mountains there. But here he shows off in the sunsets and the sun rises. We were made to behold glory. We were made for glory. We were made for awe. This is why we were made. One of the reasons we were made. We were made, now listen, by God, for God. See, God, as the uncreated creator, is the most glorious being in all of the universe, right? He is the most glorious entity. He is God. He is the most glory in and of himself. And therefore, we were made for glory. We were made for awe. You're going to find the most awe and the most glory in looking at God, in seeing God, in meeting God. He is the source of a human being's greatest joy and pleasure. But obviously, we talked about it a little bit last week. Though we have been made to enjoy God, ever since the fall of man, the fall into sin in the garden, we have been separated from the glory. We have been divorced from God and unable to get back to him, unable to really get there and enjoy the glory. And even if we could somehow find our way back to the glory, this would be like us finding our way back to the sun. I'm going to get there. And we invent the machine that gets us there. And we said, finally, I can experience it. And we step out of the spaceship that gets us to the sun. And what happens? Ashes happen, right? We are obliterated by it because God is too glorious for us and we have sin in us, right? The sinfulness of us keeps us from the glory of God. We can never truly experience it. He's holy and we are not. Well, this is where Exodus comes in. Exodus shows us how we can meet God, how we can get the glory back how we can find freedom from the things that enslave us and also enjoy him forever. So over the next year, these three themes are going to be coming up over and over and over. What are the three themes? Kind of how can we meet God? How can we know God? How can we experience God? 
What does that look like? How can we find freedom from the things that enslave us from meeting God? All right? And how can a person actually enjoy God? That's where we're headed. Now, here's where we've been so far. Uh, last week, we read Exodus 1 in the first 10, cha- 10 verses of Exodus 2. And we see Exodus is really connected to Genesis. It's actually book two of the five books of Moses. Moses is its author. And he's made all these connections. The same God of Genesis is the God of Exodus. And we need to know and understand a little bit of Genesis if we're going to understand Exodus. And what we see right away is that God got his people into Egypt. But now as his people are in Egypt, Pharaoh is oppressive. And Pharaoh has put his people, God's people, in slavery. And they came in as this tiny little minority, right? They came in as 70 people, one family, 70 people in Egypt. We're not worried about that. What could possibly happen? Well, God is faithful to his covenant, and he protects them, and he keeps them, and he watches over them, and he makes them uh, great baby makers. Like, that's what he did, right? So they go from 70 to... uh, uh, potentially, many scholars say, up to 2 million people, okay? Up to 2 million people. And now it's, it's not in a generation. Obviously, it's 400 years they're in Egypt, Egyptian bondage. God's keeping them. God's watching them. They're being fruitful and multiplying. And, but they're, and there's still this kind of minority in Egypt. And now Pharaoh looks at them and says, we have an Hebrew problem. We have an Israel problem. What if they get too mighty? And, and we... You know, and we just saw Pharaoh say there's this ethnic minority um, in, a, in, our, in our country that we're worried about. Um, here's what we're going to do. We're going to oppress them. We're going to silence them. We're going to keep them powerless. We're going to enslave them. We're going to make it brutal for them. We're going to kill their sons. We're going to make it illegal to kill their sons. And we just see this... Um, just this violence and this anger and this hatred towards an ethnic minority. And we see God using this wicked ruler's plans against himself. We see him, God kind of of steps into this evil plan and he kind of makes it backfire on itself. And we see God promise to raise up this new redeemer, this person that's gonna bring the Hebrew slaves out of slavery and freedom to worship him. And he's kind of promising a redeemer. He kind of pulls this guy out of the river, right? And rescues him. And we, we saw that last week. And now this week, we're kind of picking up uh, the story. Last week, we spent a lot of time uh, looking at those that were enslaved. And now we're, this week, we're kind of, I'm just following the text, right? I'm just following the text. And now today, we're going to be talking about kind of the preparation of the deliverer. We're going to be seeing the preparation of Moses. So let's just start in uh, chapter 2, verse 11. And here at Sacred City, we just go verse by verse and um, let the text say what the text says. So let's do this. Chapter 2, verse 11. One day, and we're reading from the ESV version, It's a great word-for-word translation. One day, when Moses had grown up, okay? So last week we left off. Moses was adopted into the house of Pharaoh, right? He's adopted into the the most powerful, you know, house on the planet. He's being raised there. Well, and he's actually given given four years back to his mom. So his mom gets to raise him for four years. And now look, 
between verses 10 and verse 11, we have basically 40 year, a 40 year gap. Okay. It says this one day when Moses had grown up, Acts 7.23 tells us that Moses was 40 years old here, okay? And that number 40 is actually going to begin, you're going to see it start coming up a lot, and we'll talk about it more in the future. I don't have really time for it today. So Moses spends three to four years being raised by his own mother through the providence of God, and then he spends the next 36 years being raised, now listen to this, raised, educated, trained in the king's house. By the, now, at this time, Egypt is the greatest nation on the earth, right? Most technologically advanced, most educated nation on the planet. So I want you to think about that. Moses was raised by the most powerful and wealthiest man on the planet. He lived for 36 years of his life in the most beautiful and expansive palace in the world. He was schooled by the most educated people in the world. He was most likely being groomed and trained to take some kind of leadership, leadership position in the greatest nation on the planet at the time. For me, this is just such a powerful narrative. Moses, let's just, let's just read, let's just keep reading. Moses had grown up. So think about this guy. He's wealthy. He's intelligent. He's had a comfortable life. He's a powerful man. He's well-dressed. He's well-respected. He went out to his people. Whoa. And he looked. You might just want to circle looked on their burdens. And he saw, you might want to circle that, an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Now, Moses looks around at his comfortable life, his exalted life, a life that has only been possible because he was raised in a country that he's a part of and a family that he's been brought into. And in effect, Moses says, Pharaoh, you are not my dad. Egypt, you are not my people. Hebrews 11 says it like this. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Now, I want you to think of this. What would Pharaoh say? How would Egypt look upon Moses' actions? What an ingrate. How disrespectful. How dare you bite the hand that feeds you. The only reason you have the wealth and the education and the power is because of Egypt. How dare you critique Egypt? How dare you side with the Hebrews? 
Moses has been through, Moses has been made through the benevolence and greatness of Egypt. And he has the audacity to say, no thanks, you are not my people. Instead, Moses sees himself as a Hebrew, as an Israelite. Now that's interesting because you know, 36 years in the house of Pharaoh, Pharaoh is trying to educate his Hebrewness out of him. He's trying to educate the Israel. He wants him to be, you know, an Egyptian ruler. He wants him to lead something, make a difference in his country. He's wanting him to do that. But he didn't. He didn't have it, his, his ethnicity and his relationship to God educated out of him. He hasn't felt. Now, hold on a second. Moses sees himself as an Israelite, but he has never felt the weight of oppression that his people have felt. So he, he would lay his head down. Just think of it. Like he has a buffet in front of him, right? He has a beautiful bedroom to go back to and he lays down in comfort for 40 years of his life while his people are suffering outside the gates. His back has never felt the brutal sting of the taskmaster's whip. But Moses here, and, and Hebrews tells us, by faith identifies with the Israelites. And then one day, dude snaps. Let's keep reading. He's looking on their burdens. He sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that. He looked this way and that. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So can you see the scene? Moses has grown up in Pharaoh's house. He's seen beatings probably nearly every week of his life or every month of his life. This is nothing new to him, but there's something going on in the heart of Moses that is now grieved for his people. He now sees himself as an Israelite. He kind of rejects his Egyptian identity and he kind of embraces his Israelite nature, his Israelite roots. And one day he's walking along and he just snaps. He's had enough and he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and he looks this way and that, okay, the coast is clear, and he kills the Egyptian and then buries the dude in the sand. Moses murders. No doubt, see, over the 36 years that Moses has been in the house of Pharaoh, he's seen so many injustices to his people. He's seen the brutality of Egypt. He's seen Egypt build itself on the backs of his own people. But then one day he goes for a walk and he looked on their burdens and he sees this and Moses begins to sympathize. I can imagine him looking at that and going, that's my people, what if I live there? What if I grew up in that neighborhood? What if that was my experience? 
He imagines what it would be like to live in such an impressive state. Then he sees an Egyptian beating an Israelite, one of his people, and he just snaps. Moses kind of looks this way and that and sees that the coast is clear. So he kills the Egyptian, buries him in the sand. And now Moses, oh, Moses. Moses has a rap sheet and murders on the top of it. Now, from this scene, I want to give us two quick points. First, I want us to be like Moses. Hold on. I think one of the works of the Spirit in the life of a Christian is meant to enable us to sympathize and empathize with people who are being oppressed even when we are maybe not aware of it. The poor, the marginalized, whatever. I can go on and on and on. That the Spirit is meant to kind of, first off, the Spirit, one of the things the Spirit is meant to do is meant to show us like that's you without Christ. Like you're spiritually bankrupt, you're spiritually poor, right? You're, you know, Jesus over and over, you're leprous, you're sick, you're dead in your trespasses and sins, but for Christ, but for the grace of God. So when we look at somebody marginalized, somebody sick, somebody impoverished, somebody of a different race, we should say, that's me without Christ. And it should give us empathy and we should sympathize with them. But, so I want us to be able to empathize and relate to people who are suffering under unjust oppression, especially as Christians. We need to look like Moses did. Moses goes for a walk, right? He's in the palace. Moses ignores it. Moses goes for a walk in a neighborhood that's not his, right? He sees oppression that doesn't happen in his neck of the woods. He goes for a walk. His eyes are open. He's kind of looking for it in a sense, and he finds it. We need to look. We need to, like last week I said, we need to listen to those who are saying they're being oppressed. And when we see it, we actually need to do something about it. We need to see it, we need to acknowledge it, and we need to then do something about it. Hear me. Christians are to be bringers of justice. Do a Bible search on justice. Do a Bible search on how God listens to the poor and how God calls us to come alongside of them and work for them and work for the justice for those who are oppressed. We need to be workers of restoration. Injustice of all kinds hurts the heart of God and it should grieve us as well. In, was it Martin Luther King? Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And it should grieve us enough to fill us with compassion. And compassion, this is like, this is a passion, right? Compassion isn't just, oh, that stinks. But it moves us to step out to do something about it. Our hearts should burn hot and move us to speak out, to stand up and work for justice. Now listen, listen to me right here if I were to piggyback off of what I said a little bit last week, and there's many guys, injustice, there's a, it's, it's, 
many faceted. There's many different aspects of it. But for the Christian, if we're hearing the call of racism, if we're hearing things about racism, the calling for the Christian isn't just not to be racist. It's to work to end racism of any form. Classism, elitism, the, the gap between the rich and the poor. Our calling isn't just to not be that. It's to work for the restoration of the good of mankind. What does Romans tell us? All of creation is groaning under the weight of sin. Not just human beings, all of creation. And so that means we need to work for the restoration of all of creation. And that includes human beings and preaching the gospel, but that also includes applying the gospel to systems and structures in our own society. We should be workers for justice. It's not enough just to not be racist. We need to be working for the restoration of the races. But my second point, okay, here it is. So first point, be like Moses. Second point, don't be like Moses. That might be a little confusing, I get it. Be compassionate. Be angry and sin not, right? That's what the scripture says. Be angry about injustice. Be a doer of justice, but do not step out in your own strength. Now this is, this one just, Moses, see, Moses is a deliverer. God has chosen him to set his people free. He's been set apart by God to deliver God's people from their bondage, but Moses cannot do it in his own strength. And when he tries, he flubs it. He kills an Egyptian, and look what happens. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. So that's his own people. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? Now listen, this is what happens. Moses went out one day, Egyptian beating a Hebrew. He says, that is unjust. Whatever, he, whatever weapon he had, he kills the Egyptian, buries him in the sand. I, Moses just might've went home with a swagger that day. I am the bringer of justice. Put an R for redeemer on my chest. I am God's man for the job. One Egyptian down, few million more to go. And then the next day he goes out, he sees two Hebrews, and now he is the self-appointed social justice dude on the, in, in Egypt right now. Brothers, why are you arguing? I'm gonna settle this real quick. Like yesterday was tough. This is an easy day. And what happens? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Who do you think you are, he says. Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? See, Moses steps out as a redeemer in his own strength, and the first thing he does is he completely screws it up. He kills someone, and now his own people lose respect for him. Moses is now a fugitive with a rap sheet and zero leadership capital. He's got no credibility as a leader, and his own people reject him. Now, at this time, Moses, you're going to see in a little bit, Moses looks like an Egyptian. 
And so his people are looking at him like, you're not one of us. <laughs> We've lived outside the gates this whole life. We didn't get to eat what you eat. We didn't get to watch what you want. We didn't get to be entertained and be educated. And all. You're not one of us. Moses tries to step out in his own strength. He flubs it. He fails. And look what happens. Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. My murder is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian and he sat down by a well. Now this is funny. And he sat down by a well. If you're familiar with the story of Genesis, you know something cool is about to happen. Everything happens, I don't know, everything cool in Genesis nearly happens next to a well, right? That's where, I mean, this is like, I think this is like the pub, okay, in a sense. Because first off, everybody gets married. This is where they meet their, their wife, right? They go down to the local well. Hey. As ever, you see it over and over and over in the book of Genesis. So that's about to happen here. Now what's going on is this. God is preparing his re- deliverer. God is preparing his redeemer, right? And now Moses gets pulled out of Egypt by the hand of God like he was pulled out of the river Nile as a baby. He's being drawn out. And this is interesting. Pharaoh has taught Moses everything he knows. He was refined and wise in all the world's standards. He had had everything money and power could buy. But Moses still had a lot to learn. The most valuable lessons in Moses' life are still yet to be learned, and he could not learn those from Pharaoh. Because as we'll see soon, Pharaoh didn't know them himself. The lessons of humility. Patience. Gentleness. Meekness. And so God pulls Moses out of Egypt and enrolls him in what I've called Midian University. Pulls him out into this obscure place because he's still got some education that needs to take place. Moses now enters the next phase of his training. And listen, this is pretty interesting. How long is Moses going to be in Midian University? 40 years. Got some scholars out there today. I like it. 40 years. 40 years in Egypt. 40 years in it in uh, Midian, and what's interesting, he's going to spend 40 years serving the Lord, delivering God's people as well. He is sent out into the desert, away from all the luxuries and the comforts that he has known to learn his most important lessons. If he is going to be God's man who brings about God's plan of, of redemption to Israel, he's got to learn this lesson. So, point one, be like Moses. Point two, don't be like Moses. Point three, learn the lesson of Moses. Moses needs to learn how to be a dependent man. How to be a man who knows his weaknesses. 
a man who knows that he can do nothing good without the guiding hand of God. Moses needs to learn the great lesson of the Apostle Paul who said, in my weakness, then I am strong. And this begins in his 40s. Now I have a friend who refers to the decade of a man's 40s as the great meat grinder of life. It's where we oftentimes wake up to the reality of what we've already done in our life and maybe we look back and say, oh man, I thought I'd be somewhere different, thought I'd be better off, thought I'd be more successful, whatever. We see our mistakes, we see the repercussions of our sins and our failures. We kind of wake up to our own weaknesses, our pains, our mortalities. A friend of mine last week uh, was limping around. I said, what happened? He said, I got hurt in my sleep. He said, you know you're getting old when you get injured in your sleep. So Moses, here in his 40s, moves to Midian. Well, let's just see what happens. Let's just keep reading. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their flocks. The shepherds came and drove them away. So there's their women here, and they're watering their father's flocks, and then these, these random shepherds come up and go, get out of here, ladies. We want to use the, sh- we want to use the well. But Moses stood up and saved them. Now, do you have a pattern here? You see a pattern. Moses is just built for, a, he's kind of a bringer of justice. Okay, that's kind of what he is. He's kind of, he's a, God's called him to redeem. God's called him to fight for the oppressed. And Moses, that's, what just, that's just what Moses does. It's just what, when there's an injustice, Moses is the type of guy that steps up. Now, there's a lot of us who you're not that, and maybe, that's, maybe you're not called to be that, but there's a lot of us who will. There's some people that walk by and they, if they see somebody being mistreated or they see something you know, unjust going on, they're gonna step up and step into it and there's others that are gonna just kind of avoid it and walk past. Moses is definitely the type of guy that's gonna step up and step into it. <clears throat> and so he says this. Oh, and, and so he, Moses stood up and saved them and he watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, and is also, this is also um, Laban. His name is also Laban. Uh, he said, how it, not Laban, Jethro. Sorry about that. I was pulling that out of the deep recesses of my mind, and I knew it came up wrong. He said, uh, Jethro, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? It's like, well, that was fast. They said, an Egyptian. Oh, an Egyptian. You see this? An Egyptian. See what he looks like? He looks like an Egyptian. He's dressed like an Egyptian. He, oh, no, no, not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Uh, uh-uh. no, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I refuse to. All right. An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, where is this guy? Why have you left him? He redeemed, he helped you. He worked for you. He he served you. Why have you left him out there? Call him that we may eat bread. 
And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. See, everything good happens by these wells, I'm telling you that. She gave birth to a son, so we've got a lot of time here. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So think about this. Moses is in his 40s. He moves to Midian. He finds a wife. He settles down with her family, and he becomes a shepherd. Let me tell you what. When I was being raised in the halls of power in Pharaoh, one thing I said is I'm going to move out to the middle of nowhere. I'm going to marry someone and I'm going to work for her dad. (laughs) That's what I want to do with my life. And spend the majority of my days shepherding stupid animals. I saw this video, somebody posted on Facebook the other day or the other day, of a sheep. He walked up to it and all you could see was its feet sticking out of a hole in the ground. It had literally, what's in there? (laughs) Crawled into this hole and he had to pull with everything in it to pull this giant sheep out of this little bitty hole. Sheep are dumb. And Moses spends the majority of the day with them. On his father-in-law's, in his father-in-law's property. Now think about this. Settles down gets a wife, gets a family, a nowhere job. He is not a rock star that no doubt he thought he was going to be when he stepped out and he killed that Egyptian and he said, I'm going to deliver God's people. I'm going to make something happen here. He's not a rock star. He's not Israel's number one draft pick. He's not a superstar like more than likely he planned on being. He's a dude with a family and a pretty boring career, watching sheep for his father-in-law, Jethro. But this is interesting to me. When Moses comes out of Midian 40 years later, at the age of 80, the spry age of 80, God's like, ah, I think you need to be 80 by the time you do anything good for me. Now just think of that. Waking up, back hurts, all kind of pain. Now you look like a deliverer. That's what I'm talking about. I'm just waiting until all the hair goes gray. I'm waiting until everyone, no one will confuse your strength from, with my strength. Nobody's going to confuse your leadership ability. I want, the, I want Egypt drained out of you. I want the world's power drained out of you. I want your swagger unswaggered. I want you to walk with a limp, not because it's a swagger, but because you're dependent on me. Takes 80 years to to do this in Moses. But this is what it says when he comes out of Midian 40 years later. It says this. This is what the scriptures say, Numbers 12, 3. Now the man Moses was very meek more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. That's what the Bible says about, what did Midian do? Midian made him meek. Midian made him the meekest man on the face of the earth. Very fascinating to me. Moses had 80 years of preparation for 40 years of work. And so 
like point three for us, we need to learn the lesson of Moses. We need to learn this lesson of meekness. Jesus' brother said it like this, actually. James, in chapter one, verse 19, of the book he wrote in the Bible. Know this, my beloved brothers, listen, let every person be quick to hear, quick to listen, quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness. So listen, I've heard Tim Keller say this one time. The biblical prescription for anger is not no anger. It's not blow anger. When you get mad, just boom, let him have it. We already see this from Moses. He gets angry at injustice. He lets him have it. Takes it in his own hand. The biblical prescription for anger is not no anger. If you're not angry at things, then you don't love anything. You're not a bringer of justice. It's not blow anger. The biblical prescription for anger is slow anger. Slow to anger. Hold on. Slow. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness. Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Be quick to hear. What did Moses, we saw Moses when he was out there? He was listening, right? He saw, he was listening, he was hearing. Be quick to hear. What I say last week, we need, our posture needs to be, we need to have open ears, we need to be quick to hear, slow to speak, we need quick to hear about injustice, those that are, feel like they're being impressed, oppressed, we need to be listening to them. This is what we're seeing here. God is showing us through the life of Moses, you can't learn the ways of God through the world or from the world. America nor Egypt can teach you the value of humility. James goes on, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. Receive it with meekness. Now what does that mean? The meek have a soft heart a heart that is made soft enough for, listen, the word of God as a seed to gently land upon, germinate, and then put down roots. Meekness is about having a soft heart, supple in the hand of God. And what we're going to see over and over and over in the book of Exodus is Pharaoh has a proud, worldly, hard heart and the words of God bounce off of him like a ping pong ball off a statue. Let my people go. No. Over and over and over, you see this proud, stubborn, hard-hearted where the word of God goes out and it just bounces off. So it is with the proud in our world and even in our church today. The proud aren't quick to listen. They plug their ears at the cry of the poor. They aren't slow to speak. They know it all and can tell you 10 reasons why the poor are poor because of their own bad choices. They can show you 10 reasons why, you know, 
minorities are just making up the problem of injustice and, and their own oppression. They're just making it up. They, can sh- they, they, they know everything. And they are quick to get angry at anyone who says anything different. And unfortunately, the internet is their playground. And they are keyboard warriors. Now, I'm going to try my best to stick to the text and to preach what I see completely coming from the text. And I think I did that last week. I think I'm doing that this week. And I was kind of shocked. First off, I told Joel, Joel got me in all kind of trouble last week. Joel, Joel didn't, we didn't talk about anything, but Joel posted a, a certain clip from my sermon last week onto Facebook. And uh, I didn't know it was going to happen. And all of a sudden, boom, some explosions took place in the internet world. And good and bad. I got many text messages, Facebook messages, things that saying thank you for saying something. I got, you know, African-American pastor in the Quad City, or I don't know if he's from the Quad Cities or not, but he's retired, been pastor for 30 years. He said he'd never heard one of his white, uh, a white reverend, white pastor speak on uh, on the issue like that, speak on, you know, exegete the text of of Exodus like that. And then I also got the other, and I don't read all the comments, but other people tell me, you know that guy called you an a-hole? I'm like, oh, no, I didn't. Cool. I must be doing something right. It was so visceral. What? And the point of the whole thing was, listen? We need to listen. See, meek people listen. Meek people have a soft heart that can go, Am I like that? Is that going on and I don't, I'm not seeing it? So what are we supposed to do? Be like Moses, don't be like Moses. Learn the lesson of Moses. But ultimately here. And these sermons hopefully are going to end in the same place every single week. The point isn't just to be like Moses. Isn't it just to look to Moses? isn't just to learn the lesson of Moses. The point is to look past Moses. Look for someone better than Moses. Look what we see in our text. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. I gotta keep going, doc, on it. We just need to have a long-term perspective, let me tell you that. I love it. The king of Egypt's dead. This is the second one that's died now already in our story. But God's people are still there. God is still on the throne. And God's just playing his pieces. This king of Egypt dies, and now he can send Moses back. Look, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue. Man, this is just... Moses is being prepared in Egypt, or out in Midian, but God's people are still in slavery. That 40 years is just another 40 years 
of silence from God, of frustration, of disappointment. And the people are crying out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Now listen, please see this. This is the point of the text. If you, so many people, when we talk about anything unjust, anything, people are, what do they always want to say? They want, what do you want me to do? What should I do about it? And there are things we, we need to step out. We need to do some things. But ultimately, this is what we need to do first and foremost, okay? Moses wants us to see, Moses is writing this, right? I'm not the hero, okay? I am being prepared off in Midian, but here, let me show you the, the, the hero. Let me show you what this is all about. And he says this, God, their cry of, their prayers came up to God, their cry out of slavery came up to God. And look, this is the key to the whole chapter. And God heard their groaning. God heard. And look, God remembered his covenant. I'm, he might be slow. He's not forgetting it. He's not forgetting the covenant he made with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. God heard, God remembered. Look at verse 25. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Moses wants us, he's trying to draw our attention back to the real hero of the story. It's not Moses, it's God. God is the hero of the book of Exodus and we're gonna get to see him flex his muscles over and over and bring Egypt to its knees and save his people so they can worship him. See, Moses does indeed become a great man. But he's still a murderer. He can never erase that. He'll go on to make more mistakes, so much so that God won't even let him go into the promised land. God brings him to the top of the mountain and says, see it, there it is. You're not going in, you're going to die here. Why? Because Moses is a slave to sin just like everyone else. Moses is a slave just like everyone else and how can a slave deliver another slave? And so we say be like Moses but then don't be like Moses because Moses is a sinner too. Moses cannot deliver anyone in his own strength and when he tries he just flubs it. Only God can deliver. This is, this is the way that the book of Hebrews says it. Chapter three, verse five. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ, it's Jesus, is faithful over God's house as a son. See, Moses is a sign that points forward to God's ultimate answer to human, humanity's cry for justice and deliverance, the sending of his son. See, when we are grieved under the weight of our own sin and we cry out and we say, why Lord, why Lord, why Lord, where are you? Help me, deliver me. God's answer isn't Moses. God's answer is his son. 
Moses was a servant that points towards a son. Moses was a slave that can't deliver other slaves, ultimately. But God's son comes to earth and lives the life that all of us fail to live. He lived a perfect life. He obeyed the Ten Commandments perfectly. He loved God. He glorified God. He did everything that we should do. And yet, he, like Moses, rejected his kind of identity. He didn't come in in the wealth and power of heaven. He came poor. Hebrews 2 says Jesus came and he, I, he made, he's made perfect through his suffering. Just blows my mind. Made perfect through his suffering. He identifies with us. He calls us his brothers. He feels the weight of sin. He feels the pressures. He feels poverty. He feels mistooken, misunderstood. He, he knows all of that. Feels the weight of being an oppressed people. But what does Jesus do? He, Jesus It's the better Moses. Moses feels the weight of injustice and he takes the sword and he lashes out and he kills. Jesus feels the weight of oppression and he bears the sword. He doesn't take it up, he takes it in. Jesus dies on the cross. Even though he's the perfect son, He takes our punishment in our place for our sins and he takes the sword. He allows humanity to kill him. What does that mean for us? First off, it means you can be counted righteous in Christ. You can be made new. All of your sins can be forgiven in one moment by putting your faith in Christ. Secondly, if you're going through oppression, if you're going through suffering, if you're going through a spot in your life or you don't understand what God's doing, this week, God has been so gracious to us as a church. We have so much good things going on. We have so many, so many babies ha- giving birth. We've got all kind of stuff going on. It's so good. And in the midst of it, One of our members this week, 24 weeks pregnant, lost her baby. Tomorrow, if you see in the city, tomorrow there's a funeral for the Hank, there's baby boy. And during those dark times, when you don't know what God is doing, what do you do? What do you do? tell you what you do. You look to Jesus because Jesus is the proof, the historical proof that God hears, that God remembers his covenant, that God sees and that God knows and that God is working for our redemption when we don't even see it. We don't even understand what he's doing. We can't feel it. He's historical proof When I'm looking at the world and saying, what in the world is going on? I can look to Jesus and say, he's working it out. God hears. God listens. God remembers his covenant. He'll never let the righteous be forsaken. God knows and God is working. Let me pray. Father, 
I thank you again for your word. I thank you for just how you develop the characters in your story. How you make men and women. Only you know how to produce in us what you want in us. No leadership development program is going to have 40 years in the desert as a part of it. But yours does, because you knew exactly what you needed from Moses. You, needed, you knew what you needed to produce in him. You knew our ultimate joy was tied to it, and I thank you for it. And Father, for those of us in here that well, maybe we're in a season, we're in the desert. I pray that you would give us hope because you see, you know, you remember, and you're working. For those of us who are in a really dark season and we don't understand what you're doing, would your text give us hope? Would this word that you promise us, would it give us hope? And ultimately, when we look to Jesus, we're so convinced of that. Jesus is the proof that you love us. Jesus is the proof that you remember your covenant. You fulfill your covenant. Jesus is the proof that we need And we thank you and we long for your return. We long for you to come back again, Jesus, and rid this world of all injustice. And we look forward to to that day in the new heavens and the new earth when everything is made right. As our profession of faith said, or confession, whatever it was that said today, we look forward to that day when all things will be made new. And we know you're the one who does that. You bring the kingdom. We can't bring the kingdom. We can be workers for injustice now. We can do our best here, but ultimately you are bringing the kingdom in its entirety. And we say, come Lord Jesus, do that. And this morning, Father, we put our faith in Jesus. I'm not the answer for this church. We're not the answer for our missional communities. We're not the answer for our neighborhoods. We're not the answer for our city. Jesus, you are the answer. And we're reminded as we come and we take your body and we take your blood that you cleanse us, you fill us, you renew us. You are at work making all things new, even right now. And we renew our trust, we renew our hope in the King of all kings, Jesus. So may we take your body and eat it in remembrance of you. May we take your blood that was shed for the remission of our sins and drink it in joy knowing that our sins have been paid for and our redemption has been sealed with the precious blood of Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.